0: Strong
1: voices. It's not just about one state, it's not just about one community, it's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world
0: sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language, I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more
2: critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialised logic are inscribed upon our bodies, and to critically examine them in order to change
3: it. The government's changed, but we've got to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years, and I don't think we're going to go anywhere.
0: What the
1: system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people.
4: A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice.
5: Good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. We're coming to you from the Calm Radio Studios here in Ubuntu, Alice Springs, on our country, and we're broadcasting to uh, all nations through Vast Channel 911. We're, of course, on Aiken FM here in Alice Springs uh, on 100.5 here locally. We're also coming to you, of course, uh, online via our website at karma.com.au. Today is, of course, the middle of the week. It's Wednesday, the 4th of September, 2019. I'm your host, Kyle Dowling. Great to be back with you once again here on Strong Voices. Well, coming up on the show, uh, the Australian Bureau of of Statistics, uh, ABS figures have revealed the uh, number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will reach 1 million in the next nine years, up from uh, 800,000. Today, we're going to be hearing from the Deputy Vice-Chancellor of uh, Indigenous Strategy and Services at Sydney University, Professor Lisa jackson Pulver. We're also going to be hearing shortly about the uh, 8th Annual Snake National Conference. That's the uh, Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Islander Childcare. That conference happened in Adelaide and... Uh, There was around uh, over 1,200 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander child development workers from across the country coming together. So we'll be hearing about that soon. Also on the topic of uh, conferences, late last week, hundreds of First Nations men from across the country came together for an annual gathering focusing on the social and emotional issues impacting uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men. And today we're going to be hearing a conversation that I had with the CEO of the Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance of the Northern Territory Amp Center. Uh, John Patterson is going to be discussing the annual Nacho Okaday Men's Health Conference, which concluded uh, last Friday on the 30th of uh, August, and uh, we're going to be hearing, of course, the very latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country as well, but right now we're going to go to a song, and then we'll be right back.
0: What's up? You're listening to Strong Voices on calm Radio.
5: That's right, you are listening to Strong Voices on Calmer Radio this uh, Wednesday morning. Well, this week does mark National Child Protection Week, and as such, the 8th Annual Snake National Conference is currently underway in Adelaide with over 1,200 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander development workers from across the nation attending the event. The aim of this year's conference is focusing on eliminating the overrepresentation of First Nations children in out-of-home care and the positive steps that are being taken to reach that goal. Karma's Damien Williams spoke with the chairperson of SNAKE, Muriel Bamblett, about the conference.
2: Look, I think that you know that the outcomes for Aboriginal children are much better when they're in family, in community. Um, we all know that nobody looks after children better than family. blood. Having, you know, that relationship and being able to, you know, really love the children and nurture them and give them, you know, keep them connected to their culture, keep them connected to their community. We, we see that, um, you know, so many, most of the families that have got strong aunts, strong uncles, um, strong culture, you don't see involved in child protection. So it's really, really important that we have, you know, um, Aboriginal people involved in the caring for children, particularly when they're involved in child protection.
4: And so at the conference, what kind of uh, other things were discussed on, you know, trying to get that number down?
2: Well, I think a lot of our focus on on this conference is to hear the positives of all the work that we're doing, to hear from Aboriginal Services about what they're doing individually and collectively. We know that the numbers, you know, are terrible, but we also know that a number of Aboriginal community organisations are doing amazing things on the ground. And I think it's really important that um, we hear those things that we think we hear about Aboriginal answers. And I think that you know our, our um, focus of this conference is growing up strong with um, with a strong identity, culture, and connection. And I think that we've flipped child welfare on its head. Once once upon a time, child welfare was around a Western construct of just removing children. Now we see culture embedded in the practice. And so we know that children um, in, in out-of-home care um, often don't have um, connection to culture. So a lot of our work is around um, making sure that children have cultural support plans, that they're linked to, Um, that they know their identity, they have a genealogy, they have Aboriginality, that they're involved in activities in the community, that they're going to the Aboriginal health service, that the educators in the school are aware of the specific Aboriginal needs of the child in the school. So all those things contribute to our children having a better experience in out-of-home care. Obviously, it's better if they're with their family. and clearly during Child Protection Week, a lot of our focus and energy is on looking at how do we actually um, keep children in communities, keep children in families. And that has to be our, our primary focus. But over the um, three days, we're hearing about what's, what do we need to do at a policy level, what do we need to do around Close the Gap? What do we also need to do around, you know, ensuring that our practice is better? How do we actually get greater coverage of um, child protection in every state and territory? We know some states do it better than others, but why should you get a better service in one part of the country and not in another? And so these are the hard conversations that we're having.
4: Is there a a lot of focus on on trying to get uh, more kinship carers into the system as well?
2: Yeah, look, and it's good to get kinship carers, but we also want to make sure that they feel supported, they get remunerated, and that, you know, because, you know, even kinship carers taking on some of our most troubled children, you want that placement to work. You want them to get access to counselling, to support to be able to, you know, work with some of the most vulnerable children. So I think, yes, we do want, you know, um, more kinship carers. We've got over 1,200 people um, at the SNAKE conference this week, and so they're they're coming to hear about, you know, all right, we know um, we've got to do better. Let's learn how we do better. And so, you know, recruiting kinship carers, but also about keeping carers. From our point of view, um, carers are like gold. Once they take on the care of a child. We've got to make sure that they get all the resources and all the supports to be able to look after that child. But not just look after them as a baby, but look after them as they transition through, you know, going to kinder, that they have all of the knowledge and skills to be able to get our kids to be able to um, thrive in life.
4: And and, and along those lines as well, I mean, like you are saying... you know, it does take a long time to um, to, to look after uh, children. And, and then um, are you looking at sort of trying to... Um, well, how long do these uh, children stay in out-of-home care?
2: Look, I mean, that's a really good question. I've just been to a session on leaving care, and they were talking about, you know, the age of leaving care. And so children can be in care for long periods and children can be in care for short the best placements are where we can work with families to get children back home very quickly. But where children are in long-term need of care, then it's being able to support those children. But I think um, the age of leaving care now in, in four states um, is 21. What the evidence is showing that um, Aboriginal children leaving care are much more disadvantaged, so they're more likely to end up in the juvenile justice system. They're more likely to end up homeless. Now, it, it, it goes just, you know, show that if you're living in an ordinary family, you've got a careful life. Um, for when you're living in out-of-home care, most of the systems, you've got to care for 18 years, you're on your own. So, to me, it, it's about how do we... Children need to have that strong connection back to family and culture. We know that 80%, 90% of children, when leaving care, they go home. But if a child goes home, they need to go home to some sense of connection. It's no use to try going home to family when you know, they've had no relationship and they don't know you know, don't know your mob. You know, you ask a child that leaves care that's never had a connection, you ask them who your mob is, you ask them who his family is and if he doesn't well if he's not able to answer that. That is a real big problem with a system that hasn't kept him to his culture, that he doesn't know who his family is, he doesn't know who his body and he can't keep connected.
4: And so, are you sort of um, wanting to, yeah, strengthen that kind of like you're saying before? You know, support the children and the carers in giving those children that connection to culture. You know, oh, will that will yeah. that mean like you know doing um, back home visits and, and country visits and that yep. kind of thing?
2: Yep. And so, um, a lot of you know our work is around return to country, the importance of taking children back to feel their country, to introduce them to elders on their country who can tell them the stories of their people, their family and the contribution, and, the, and, and, and explain that our people fought hard, their people fought hard for, you know, what they've got today. And we need to instill in young people the strength of, you know, Aboriginal and strength of family and, and how every Aboriginal family in Australia contributes, you know, to the fabric of Aboriginal community. So I think it's really important that we don't just provide, you know, to children, um, you know, a boomerang or, a, you know, a, a, a didgeridoo. You give, them, you give them a strong sense of who they are. You give them their genealogy. You do return to country. You do all of those things. You include them in cultural camps. You include them in women's business, men's business. It's important children understand respect and the values, and what of the things that, you know, um, not only about the rights to an Aboriginal culture, but the responsibilities under those. And, you know, we know what they are personally. I grew up Aboriginal. I, my grandmother, you know, grew me up, and my aunties and uncles grew me up. And, you know, so it's about when kids aren't able to experience that. So how do we actually make, you know, the system and have them... Feel as connected, as much connected to our
4: community and our processes and systems around protecting and safeguarding children's future. And I was just wondering as well, Muriel, a bit about you know even is there support um, out there for these children even maybe before you know the families and the children before it goes to that point of of um, going into um, out of home care.
2: Look, I mean, I think different states and different territories do it differently. I know that um, I come from Victoria, and I know that there's a focus, particularly in Queensland, as well. And so, states are looking at how do they um, keep children safe, what sort of programs they say they stronger families, cradle to kinder, and looking at supporting young mums. In, and so, it, it, to protect children and to you know work with families, it's not just a child protection issue; it's a health issue. It's, an early years issue. It's about all of us keeping our eyes on children and making children sure that children feel safe um, and that we're raising strong, children. But, you know, if children are, um, you know, if they're presenting to the health service and there are issues, then it's about making sure that those issues don't escalate into a child protection issue. It's about putting those supports in. We need to have home visiting programs. We need to have good maternal and child health. We need to have, you know, our families accessing those services much earlier. But the real issue that we haven't got in in Australia is parenting programs, parenting programs that, um, you know, talk to our families about relationships, about, you know, the importance of the healthy brain development. We know that it's fixed in a great childhood. It saves many heartaches and so many resources later on the investment into the early years into maternal and child health into you know breastfeeding and all of the things that improve children's early years contributes to a much better you know set of indicators later in life
4: well muriel uh, and you know i understand that um just finally, just wanted to ask before I let you go, again, what are the main things that uh, you're hoping um, come out of this conference in Adelaide?
0: Look, obviously,
2: um, we do want to hear the stories about how in, how culture is important, how a strong identity is important to children in the child protection system and the work that we're doing around that. But we also want to hear about some of the things that, you know, like we don't, the hard things that the role of men we have a system where, you know, it preferences women. And so how do we actually start to look um, at the child protection system and think about having men as fathers, as peers, as nurturers. But here's some of the things that we're really, really sort of struggling with. The issue of, you know, mental health, we know, you know, we've got suicide and some of those big issues. And a lot of the young people, um, you know, that we're losing have a history of being in out-of-home care. So... Are we really addressing the trauma, and are we addressing the really critical issues for young people um, to stop their so It's so it's such, um, it's so sad that we lose children so young, and it's so unnecessary. What what are we doing? How can we improve it, and how can we get people to understand the dire needs and the real needs of our children?
4: On that note, uh, Muriel Bamblit, thanks very much for joining me here on Calm Radio. Thank you very much for having me.
5: That was the chairperson of the uh, Secretariat of National Aboriginal and Islander Childcare, also known as SNAKE. Uh, that was Nero Bamblett, and she was speaking with uh, Karma's Damien Williams. We're going to be hearing soon about uh, new figures revealing the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are going to be rising quite significantly over the next nine years very soon. But before then, we are going to go to a break now, and then we'll be right back.
1: You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio.
5: That's right. We're back here with me, Kyle Dowling, on Strong Voices here on Calm Radio. Well, our ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics figures, reveal that the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will top 1 million in the next nine years, up from about 800,000 currently. The ABS also projects that 40% of First, Nation, First Nations Australians will live in a major city by 2031, up from 37% in 2016, while the proportion of those living in remote areas will fall from 19 to 15%. Deputy Vice-Chancellor Indigenous Strategy and Services at Sydney University, Professor Lisa jackson Pulver, says the increase and in migration of the First Nations need to be discussed.
0: With this number, it means something for us to stop, take a breath and have an important conversation about what does it mean. I think the whole thing about the growth of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people has to be discussed at a community level. We have an 18% increase of people who are identifying in the census, each and every census. That is more than people that are born. So that is, you know, we mentioned the word migration before. It's called migration into cohort. It's people who have not identified in the past, now identifying. Why are they identifying? Is it because they feel safe to identify? That could be it. Is it because they've recently found out about their ancestry? Well, that could be it. Is it because they're finally disclosing that their grandmother and therefore their parent and therefore themselves are Aboriginal? Well, that could be it. Is a different reason altogether? It could be. But at the end of the day, our population is growing. There's more need than ever, I think, for us to really have those pragmatic conversations about our culture and our ways and how we can help people understand who they are and where they belong and what they need to do to connect with community and country. That's a very, very important characteristic of of being Aboriginal people, of being able to be connected and I worry that many people are not and uh, you know, I don't know how we have that conversation um, unless we have it as a larger, broader Aboriginal society and communities together. We know that in 17 There were between 750,000 and 1.5 million Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people on this place that today we call Australia. Over subsequent 200 odd years, that figure has dropped to so much so that there was around about 50,000 at one point in the 1900s. That's a shocking thing. Now we've got around about 800,000 people and all of those years, there have been discussions about reconciliation, there's been discussions about making amends, there's been discussions about what do we do about the forced removal of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children from their homes, families, communities. Is it time to talk about it? Absolutely. Are we as a nation probably to fob it off for the next generation to come? Well, that's what's happened in the past, and I think there now comes a time. We know that there's lots and lots of people talking about the mechanism from the heart. We've been talking about treaty for a long time, and I think now we've got to get beyond that and say this is what's happening. In GAMA just recently, the Youth Forum made a statement of imagination. And I think it's time for us to take inspiration from the youth. The youth have basically said, let's not keep putting off until tomorrow what we can't be bothered doing today. My words, not theirs. Um, But it's really important for us to really be brave enough and courageous enough to step into the future and say, this is what is and this is what we need to do.
1: When we look at the impact of colonisation and... Over many, many years, we've seen First Nations Australians uh, pushed into poverty. Uh, We can't describe it as anything else. I mean, historically, First Nations peoples who lived near the coastline had a a very sophisticated lifestyle, um, one that many non-Aboriginal historians are still struggling to come to terms with. But the impact of colonisation and the mindset of the First Nations peoples now of being prepared to live alongside the colonisers, generally the First Nations peoples of this country have been accepting, much more than other nations may have been. So at what point do the powers that be, as acknowledging this increase in population, at what point do they start to look at redressing some of what's happened in the last 200 years.
0: We have to recognise that there's no part of Australia that wasn't loved and known. There wasn't any part of Australia where people were not. Um, Our people have been here forever, uh, in every part, and so the movements that we're seeing has only been quite persistent in the last couple of hundred years due to the colonial endeavour not due to anything else, not due to climate change, not due to ice ages, not due to anything other than the colonial endeavour. And there's always going to be consequences for that. And today we've got many, many people who... Some don't know what country they belong to, some don't know the families they come from, many don't know language, um, yet we still persist. You know, we are still a strong cultured people with our many, many different ways of doing things and our exquisite ability to be able to uh, survive, uh, to, uh, in some instances, thrive, um, and we're certainly resilient to boot. There's a lot for mainstream Australia to learn, and I think one of the fundamental messages that I'd love people to understand is that We have forever been walking in the many worlds that we've got, you know. So Aboriginal Australians know a lot about the Western ways and Aboriginal Australians know a lot about their own ways and Aboriginal Australians know about the modern ways and many of us listened carefully to our grandparents as they shared the older ways. Modern Australia as a whole doesn't have that and I think it's a shame, really, because, you know, the richness of culture that is there for them to learn from and to share, um, you know, is an opportunity lost. And, again, sort of coming back to that thing where we've got a lot of people moving away from the remote areas and rural areas and the rural areas into the urban areas. I don't know if you saw the other stats that came out, but the fastest-growing area um, over the next 8 to 10 years will be the ACT, the Australian Capital Territory, followed closely by the City of Brisbane, in Queensland, and followed thirdly by regional Victoria. Now, this is a massive shift of people uh, into areas, um, you know, and and a congestion uh, that's going to be occurring. So my question is, what happens then to those communities that people have left and moved from? What happens to the young people, what happens to the stories, what happens to the land, what happens to belonging, and how can we really make sure that those important things are cared for and looked after? Difficult question, you know, and as a nation we have to grip that up. Yes, we're going to have lots more people. Fantastic. We're going to have lots of people growing older too. We're going to have double the number of people aged 65 and over. Isn't that wonderful? But then there's the story of how do we look after, you know, very aged people? How do we care for them in a way that has dignity and decency, as well as having a, a cultural way of doing that? You know, these are all conversations that we, as a as groups, have to have, and it's certainly something that Australia as a nation has to grip up.
1: Why is it that Indigenous peoples and many non-Indigenous peoples from other countries can? come to Australia and recognise and accept the oldest living culture on earth and what that has to offer to this nation, and yet there's something in the psyche of Australians from 200 years on that doesn't want to take that journey to the level that they should be, bearing in mind again the global significance of Australia's First Nations.
0: I know, that's extraordinary, isn't it? When I used to teach, the most engaged students were those who were themselves first-generation Australians. You know, absolutely remarkable. They had a first to understand what it is to be Australian and for them it was very much learning around about Aboriginal people and about Torres Strait Islander people. It's fascinating, isn't it? I can't really answer that. What I do know, though, is that there are a lot of people that really just don't care enough. We were talking before about the Mile Creek work and the amazing thing is seeing non-Aboriginal people standing at the memorial with Aboriginal people, all of them descendants of the people who were at Mile Creek on the day, descendants of those who perpetrated the massacre and descendants of those who were the victims of the massacre. And at the end of the day, all of those people stood on that memorial and embraced each other for who they were, decent human beings, to acknowledge and accept and embrace the history and move on stronger for it into the future. And I think if modern Australia, white Australia, could really, really stand on country and look into the eyes of, of our peoples and say... This is our history. This is how we've got to be here, um, and this is where we can move together forward. I think we'd be in a very different
5: place. That was Professor Lisa Jackson Pulver speaking with Karma's Paul Wiles. We're going to be hearing the uh, latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country right after this. G'day,
3: folks. This is Kutcher Edwards, and you're listening to Our Strong Voices here on Karma Radio.
5: That's right. You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio. Great to have your company this morning, and I'm very happy to have the company of uh, Damien Williams and Paul Wiles. Great to have you both here. Good morning, Carl. Good morning. Well, it is time for the news from around the country. We'll start with you, Damien. I understand you have a story in regards to the Northern Land Council.
4: Yes, uh, one of Australia's most. Uh, this comes from the ABC. Um, land Council, the Northern Land Council, is looking to attract um, more Chinese investment uh, to into Aboriginal land across the Northern Territory. Uh, it comes amid. Um, the growing concern about Chinese influence in the region and off the back of the lease of the port and uh, down port of um, Chinese firm Landbridge for 99 years. Uh, the NLC has confirmed it began discussions about how to diverse, diversify and look at um, economic opportunities uh, further abroad. Um, so, uh, this comes from uh, the NLC CEO, Marian Scrimger, That uh, China is a really good market. It's to the north of Darwin, and um, she thinks will provide some really good opportunities for um, the communities in the Northern Territory. And we need to look at how to how do we further develop the proposal, and how we might be able to go forward. Um, so, uh, yeah, she said an increase in sea. C- Food production for aboriginal sea country um to support the giant and growing chinese market was one such possibility so yeah just looking to um the nlc they're trying to look to um, build relations with china more
5: mm, definitely very interesting to to hear from the nlc and, and to obviously talk about you know what sort of future that they're looking towards, I guess? Well, uh, again,
1: uh, you know, when we look at uh, China's presence in the um, Asia-Pacific region, um, they're, they're very smart at doing business, uh, mm. China. And uh, they've obviously seen uh, areas of neglect uh, by uh, some of the colonial powers in the region, and uh, a continuation of uh, um, perhaps doing uh, as much as what could have been done. Um, so um, as we've seen with China in uh, Africa and other parts of the globe, and they're pouring huge amounts of money in to different regions. Um, people, Some people may see that as a good thing. Others obviously see it as a threat. Um, mm. But...
4: Uh, Global politics uh, will continue. Mm. And, and we've seen other original groups too go to China for I- investment um, opportunities as well. And, I mean... They have a very big population and it's growing and they need, you know, food and they stuff need as food. well. They so, yep. uh, And, you know, some cattle stations and, and other places will provide it.
1: Yeah, and uh, um, the other important thing going into the future is uh, reserves of water. Mm. And again, we know that uh, some of the conversation around the purchase of territory cattle stations ha- has been for the uh, water underneath those, uh, you know, bores and aquifers and things like that. Like that, So, uh, yes, yeah, certainly uh, a topic for discussion.
5: Mm. Mm. On to you quickly, Paul. What do you have for us this morning?
1: Well, a uh, submission to the Productivity Commission says there are no penalties for failure when it comes to the way that money is spent on Aboriginal programs and policies in the Northern Territory. Uh, according to uh, the uh, Yothu Yindi Foundation... Aboriginal disadvantage has become a commodity in the Northern Territory. Uh, North East Arnhem Land Leader Galaroy Unipingu argues that the Territory Government should be stripped of authority to spend large sums of federal money, including $1.3 billion a year for housing, education and social services. Uh, according to the Australian, the Foundation suggests the new National Indigenous Australians Agency Overseen by Indigenous Australians, Minister Ken Wyatt should be given more power and it recommends all non-GST revenue that is spent by the Federal Government in relation to the lives of the First Nations peoples in the Territory should be managed by the National Indigenous Australian Agency. Uh, The Foundation claims that things are so out of order in the NT that the system has turned on itself uh, such uh, in such a way that the low socioeconomic conditions of remote Aboriginal Australia has become the means by which the system maintains itself. So uh, this is a discussion that's been around for quite a long time now. Uh, Aboriginal disadvantage uh, has become an industry um, and The large amounts of money um, that are put into solving problems uh, often don't even reach the ground where they're needed. So uh, the Yothu Yindi Foundation uh, has earmarked um, one particular area there around housing. Uh, But uh, we know, again, politics, um, governments come and go, politicians come and go, um, the mob aren't going anywhere. Hmm.
5: Well, on that note, uh, Paul, Damien, thank you both for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to go to a track now and then we'll be right back.
4: You're listening to Strong Voices on Calm Radio.
5: Well, hundreds of First Nations men from across the country uh, recently came together for an annual gathering focused on social and emotional issues impacting Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men. That was at the Na- the annual Nacho Oka Day Men's Health Conference, which took place in Melbourne uh, last week and wrapped up on Friday, the uh, 30th of uh, August. Uh, this, is, this marks seven years of the conference, and I actually saw 200 delegates focusing on the key issues of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander men being in control, uh, being innovative, and being influential. Last Friday, I spoke with uh, John Patterson, the CEO of the Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance NT, uh, AMSANT, and I began by asking him how the conference went.
3: Oh, Kyle, look, I've come away really pumped, Really heartened by some of the very, very good work that's going on right around the nation with our men's groups. Um, some of them are reasonably funded; others aren't. They're doing it on, on a uh, shoestring budget and relying on, you know, sponsors and other forms of income. There's no ongoing funding for these projects for our uh, men to continue these programs. And these programs are having such a success in their respective regions and communities. Some of them are really linking men that have lost connection to country, going back to country, learning how to uh, do craft work, going back and and building their communities, sharing their stories, trying to get over all uh, all the intergenerational trauma that many of them have been through because of... The stolen Generation process or, you know, just lost connection to the country and the family. So I'm really, uh, really pleased with the, uh, the presentations and the guest speakers that we've had. We've had some really great speakers over the last two days, some great leaders out there that are doing some terrific work in communities and with men's groups.
5: So who are some of the people that w- were a part of that process
3: Yeah, look, we had, um, obviously, our sportsmen, um, Kyle Baderkite, Patrick Johnson, and then some of our uh, other inspiring community men that are working in the health sector and health services from right around the country and uh, the alcohol and other drug units, uh, the social and emotional wellbeing units. We had representatives from other peak organisations that come and talk to us about some of the great work that they're doing and supporting men in their their communities and uh, training, mentoring, coaching and just giving a safe space for men to come and talk. Men that are suffering, you know, with, um, like I say, generational trauma, stress or they've had uh, bad experiences with drug and alcohol and they wanting to, you know, change their lives, change their behaviour and reunite with family, reunite the community, and we're having a really good success there. But again, like I say, the big issue is recurrent ongoing funding for our mob.
5: As an Aboriginal man, how do you feel about the, that current state of how First Nations men are, are placed in this country? Whether you're talking about things like health or, or you know mm. uh, the social impacts and things like that, how do you yeah. think how do you think we're placed?
3: Oh, the the statistics are still terrible when it comes out life expectancy gap. We had a presentation from a national men's um, research group that uh, provided these terrible statistics, again, you know, of the life expectancy gap between Aboriginal men and uh, non-Aboriginal brothers of this country. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, the Territory is one of those jurisdictions that um, is suffering the most and... uh, more rural, remote, you go. Um, the, the terrible the statistics are getting. Diabetes. Great presentation from uh, a gentleman that's working tirelessly behind the scenes and with Aboriginal medical services from around the country to address type two, type two diabetes and getting some great results. Um, we had, you know, one particular community that um, he's been working with is the Burke community, in New South Wales unbelievable results you know women men losing lots of weight reducing their the diabetes needles that they have to inject themselves every day reducing the tablets um, and all those other chronic illnesses that are linked to diabetes type 2 so heartening but you know he needs to be we, we need the appropriate level of funding and support to get him around to other communities right around australia so that he can train up and skill up local community workers so that they can carry on this work, which is having spectacular results. It blew me away when I heard that presentation.
5: And you talked about some of those inequalities that are still there. Obviously, these are things that have been existing for a long time. But why do you think we haven't seen the funding allocation for some of these programs that you're talking about that have been doing amazing work?
3: I don't know, Kyle. Um, Maybe it's because we aren't advocating in the right spaces. Uh, And we've made a commitment um, today that we will work with and want to call on and work with NACCHO, our National Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Organisation, to support our Indigenous men around the country. We've got a 10-point plan that we drafted way back in 2013. We need to pull that off the bookshelf. Dust off the uh, the dust that's you know been sitting on it for a while, and um, and get you know Aboriginal men to uh, review it, have a look at the ten points, the plan, the ten point plan, see whether they're still relevant, and they are from what we saw, and to uh, then undertake you know the the uh, lobbying and advocacy work to the respective governments and. Obviously it's the federal government where where we'll need to turn our attention to see if we can secure some funding from the appropriate portfolio areas at, at the federal government level to support uh, some of those initiatives within
5: that plan. I understand that uh, at this conference, the um, some of the main key topics were uh, being in control, uh, innovative and influential. In, in terms of pathways towards leadership then, we were talking about things like being influential for, mm. for young men who want to, you know, sort of agitate and, and make that change. Mm. Do you think there are a lot of opportunities and avenues for, for our young men to do that?
3: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, again, some of the other presentations were from local Local communities where they've had um, elders present, and the majority of those attending those those week long camps have been young young men that have found themselves struggling in uh, society. And with the support, the mentoring, and the coaching, and the learnings that the elders passed on to those young fellows, just amazing. You know, after the um, their week long stay with the uh, with, with the elders. Uh, and learning that history, learning you know uh, about society, about uh, land, the link to land, the culture, is you know is just unbelievable. It just energised and and made a big difference to those young men that are wanting to uh, reignite the community and society generally. And uh, the sorts of programs, you know, we we've, we've got huge statistics in the um, in the self harm space, dealing with depression. There's a number of, again, presenters that are working tirelessly with with those in their respective communities to deal with depression, how to overcome it, how to work through those processes. And uh, again, you know, the lack of funding for those programs uh, which have got results. You know, you can see that these programs that our um, Aboriginal men are running in their respective communities with the little bit of funding that they're able to skew from funding sources, uh, are just having a magnificent um, result, you know, great, great results.
5: What do you hope comes off the back of a conference like this, when we can have, you know, over 200 delegates coming together, all these different mm. leaders and, and people from different fields like you were talking about? Yeah. What, what do you hope is, is sort of coming from this and the ways that we can move forward then?
3: Well, again, we're seeking Nacho support to, uh, you know, establish a working group of men from right around the country so that we can uh, keep regular contact um, and and network and, you know, disseminate information, disseminate all those good news stories, best practices, ideas, and get those guys that are uh, providing, the non-Indigenous men that are providing the support in in some of these uh, areas to help with come and work with our communities. Some do it on a voluntary basis. A great, you know, speech from Prescott and Campbell, former rugby league player. Very inspiring presentation by Preston. You know, he's passing on the learnings around leadership um, and and being a role model for his his community. Uh, Another successful story that was done by Preston. And we should be tapping into and and, and utilising our great uh, uh, leaders that are out there, former sportsmen and women, community leaders... They've all got their strengths and they're doing some brilliant, brilliant work and I'm, I'm absolutely aspired, like I said, and heartened after coming away from there and uh, once we get our national working group um, established, they can look at that 10-point plan and um, we do the relevant lobbying and advocacy work that's required and see if we can secure some funding. I sit on the Close the Gap Joint Council group now, so... Uh, I'll certainly be advocating at that level. It's just amazing some of the turnaround in, in that that type two diabetes. Um, you know, turning our young men away from that uh, state of depression, making them become better citizens in society, better better parents, loving and nurturing their their loved ones and their um, families. It's just a, a great opportunity, I believe, and men are taking a lot of this. This working with our own hands, and that was the motto of our uh, of our conference. Men's health in our hands, and we own it.
5: That was the uh, CEO of the Aboriginal Medical Services Alliance, NT AMSAT, John Patterson. That's going to conclude Strong Voices for this uh, Wednesday morning. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you want to listen back to the program, I'll be posting up a podcast of uh, Strong Voices today. We'll be back the same time tomorrow.
4: Strong Voices.